Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. Today, more than 100 cities and a dozen states across the U.S., including California, are celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day. The Bay Area has a deep history when it comes to recognizing Native culture. It was the site of an iconic protest for Native sovereignty. During the 1960s, a group representing several tribes sailed to Alcatraz Island, which was once a lonely land, and claimed it for all Native Americans. The occupation attracted a lot of national attention, as well as support from celebrities like Marlon Brando and Jane Fonda. The person at the helm of that protest was a man named Richard Oakes. We feel that the so-called Alcatraz Island is more than suitable for an Indian reservation, as determined by the white man's own standards. By this we mean that this place resembles most Indian reservations. It is isolated from modern facilities and without adequate means of transportation. Chronicle investigative reporter Jason Fagoni says Native people saw Alcatraz Island as a symbol of U.S. government oppression because of how the prison built there detained their people. It wasn't like they were just like camping out there on the island during the occupation. They said from the beginning that the vision was to build a completely new nation on Alcatraz, a Native American nation of all the tribes, kind of the first of its kind, literally a new country. Like many people in the Bay Area, Jason didn't know a whole lot about the leader of the Alcatraz occupation, even though Oaks later became the face of Red Power, a national movement for indigenous rights and sovereignty. Do you think you have the legal right to claim the island? And why? Well, you're talking about two different societies now. In my society, or in the Indian society, yes, we do. Richard Oakes was originally from New York, a member of the Akwesasne tribe. As Jason dug into the history of the occupation, he realized there was so much more to learn about Oakes, in particular, how he was murdered in 1972 at the age of 30. In reading about Alcatraz, of course, you're reading about Richard. And I, I read about how he was killed three years after the start of the occupation in the middle of the Sonoma County Redwoods. And I was just fascinated with it. And, and the, you know, there had been all these sort of like open questions swirling for a long, long time. And, and I just wondered if there was any way to sort of like sort of dig in and find people who might have something to say. Jason started his investigation by pinging his Chronicle colleague, Julie Johnson, a reporter who knows a lot about Sonoma County. Jason asked Julie if she thought they could find anybody over there who would know anything about Oaks's murder case. So Julie put out some feelers. It was incredible because the first person I called knew exactly what I was talking about and had even been in the courtroom. And that just told me, wow, this is, this is a story that's been brewing under the surface for a long time. Today on Fifth Emission, Jason Fagoni and Julie Johnson share that story. We were honestly the first reporters to knock on doors. The detective, the prosecutor, the jurors, these people really helped weave together what happened, but they had just never been asked about it. It was an investigation that included not only talking to people in Sonoma County, but also digging into hundreds of pages of court transcripts and hard-to-get FBI files. 
Through their reporting, the untold story of Richard Oakes's death emerged. They also uncovered the pain that his loved ones have lived with for over five decades, including Eloy Martinez, Oakes's closest friend and a fellow activist. Richard was a visionary. Maybe he had an inclination that he was going to be around that long, for a long time. I always wondered, his life short like that, what he could have did if he'd have survived, you know. Oaks was a powerful organizer that inspired indigenous people to action. How have people never heard of his story? I began my conversation by asking Jason Fagoni and Julie Johnson that very question. I think there are many reasons. Part of it has to do with the trauma that his family experienced. To lose him was crushing for them. His wife, Annie Oaks, didn't want to talk about it. It was too painful. And some of her children even grew up not wanting to be Native. They felt really estranged from their father's activism. They felt really estranged from the very universe he was fighting so hard to protect and create. So veterans of the Alcatraz occupation, really soon after it ended, started holding reunions. They would go back every year and and still do. And the Oaks family just didn't go, you know, for 30 years. I think part of the reason that Richard isn't remembered the way he should be is the miscarriage of justice that we reveal in this story. Not just the fact that he was killed, cut down before his prime, but the fact that an all-white jury let his killer off the hook and acquitted mm. him. There was almost no media coverage, but what little media coverage there was, you know, the story that sort of propagated about Richard was that he had gotten into this kind of small town feud in this remote place in Sonoma County. He had somehow contributed or provoked his own death. And so it wasn't anything like the story that spread about uh, Martin Luther King, right? Or that spread about Malcolm X or Robert Kennedy Jr. These other 60s activists who were gunned down, they became heroes. But Richard never got that treatment because the story about how he died made it very kind of like muddy and rough-edged and confusing. Jason, just to back up a little bit, I I wonder about Oak's origin story. He was such a figure, a leader, and an important activist for Indigenous people. What made him such a standout leader to the people who organized alongside him? His story is a fascinating one. He came from New York. He was, a, he was an iron worker as a young man, but he got sick of working on the steel of bridges and he wanted to see the world. So late 60s, he drives cross country in a Ford Mustang and enrolls at San Francisco State. And at that time, SF State is like the epicenter of radicalism. There was a really active sort of black power component. Black students were protesting the administration even shutting down classes. And there was also a group of young Native American students there who were really, really angry at the long mistreatment of, of Native people by the federal government and were kind of fed up and they wanted to stand up and, and, and fight. And so Richard, he's, he started helping out with some of their efforts. And pretty soon he emerged as a leader among these Native American students because of a couple of things. One was he was incredibly eloquent. He could write, he could write a speech, he could deliver a speech that would, you know, have people on their feet. I don't know. He he was incredibly um, handsome, right? Like he looked like a young Marlon Brando. He really Mm -hmm. did. And, uh, and he had this powerful way of expressing ideas. He was also just sort of like blazingly charismatic on a personal level. You know, there are all these stories about him walking around at parties 
with a drink and laughing and telling jokes and recruiting people to um, to protest that the Native American students were planning and doing. You know, he, he walk around a party for half an hour or an hour and get 10 volunteers to literally to get arrested at a protest and, and hauled away as part of a, a piece of civil disobedience. I mean, that's an incredible skill to get people to, to, to mm-hmm. volunteer to go to jail on behalf of a bigger cause. And uh, mm-hmm. he was able to do that. People just he would talk and people would just uh, follow him. OK, let's fast forward a bit. It's 1970, two months into the Alcatraz protest, and Oakes and his wife suffer a tragedy when their 13-year-old daughter dies from an accident. The personal devastation ends the family's time on the island. And without Oakes, the occupation of Alcatraz dissipates. But the Red Power movement continues to gain momentum. Richard Oakes and his family travel along the east and west coasts, organizing for indigenous rights. Oakes's activism raises his public profile even more, and the threats against his safety. As Richard kept organizing protests, civil disobedience, he started to encounter opposition and things got dangerous for him. In June 1970, Oakes and others tried to conduct a citizen's arrest of the CEO of PG&E because the state's powerful utility company owned traditionally native land. Their attempt was unsuccessful, but it garnered media attention. Later that day, a man hits Oakes in the skull with a pool cue while he celebrated at a bar in the mission. The attack left him in a coma for weeks. Eventually, he woke up after native healers treated him. He had permanent damage. He walked with a limp and he suffered from extremely painful headaches. He wasn't ever quite the same person again. The family decides to move to Sonoma County. It's where Oakes's wife, Annie, grew up. Despite his injury, Oakes resumed his activism, including taking up a land rights cause. He and others set up an impromptu toll collection to protest the widening of a road in Sonoma County, which would carve into native land. I think only eight drivers went through. They were charged a dollar. Most said they didn't mind. But that feeling was not universal. Sonoma County was not the same world Oakes grew up in. It was a very rural, agricultural, ranching community. It was conservative. It was Catholic. So here comes Richard, a really worldly guy. He blocks a road, rarely traveled, but that ranchers are used to having free access in and out. And he's called a militant in the next day paper. Jason, let's fast forward some more to September 1972. That's when Oakes encounters Michael Oliver Morgan for the first time, That's the man who would eventually shoot him dead. Morgan was the caretaker of a YMCA summer camp next to the reservation. He was a veteran of the U.S. Army, and he lived at the camp with his wife and children. Oakes and Morgan get into an argument over two teenage Mohawk boys who end up near the camp. There were different accounts of how that argument escalated, and you got your hands on unredacted FBI records. What new information was revealed? Right. So this is when the feud began. This is the first time that Morgan and Oakes ever met. It was six days before the killing. Until we found these records, there there had been these two competing stories of how this feud developed and what happened on that first day. The first version of the story came from Morgan and from his employees, what they told the FBI and, and police. And according to this version, the uh, conflict was, was started by this 15-year-old Mohawk kid named Billy Lazor who had been staying with Richard nearby at the reservation. 
on September 14th, 1972, this kid is walking near the YMCA camp and he gets into an argument with Morgan and his employees about hunting rights in front of the camp. The, the kid says that this is Indian land. Morgan says, absolutely not. And then Richard shows up and joins the argument. It gets more and more heated until eventually the kid pulls out a knife and Richard takes the knife away from him. And again, this is according to Morgan and his employees. According to them, at the moment that Richard takes the knife, Morgan is afraid for his safety. So he takes a shotgun, he points it above Richard's head, and he fires a warning shot. And then Richard reluctantly leaves with the kid, but not before he threatens to come back and burn the camp down. The second version of the story comes from the kid's testimony in court. And he said that that's totally wrong. He said Richard never made any threat, that it was the white men at the camp who were the ones who were making threats and escalating the conflict. So according to the kid, Morgan called Oaks a stupid Indian. And the kid also said that Morgan suddenly fired the warning shot at Oaks for no real reason. Nobody had a weapon in their hand at the moment that Morgan fired. It was only after Morgan fired the shotgun when the kid pulled out his knife to defend himself. Mm -hmm. And that's when Richard took the knife away from the kid to try to de-escalate the situation. Richard actually turned his back to Morgan at that point to show that he wasn't a threat. So that's the kid's version. And we've had these two versions. But what we found in these FBI records is something new. Actually, two new things. So one is there's more evidence in the record for the kid's version of the story. It's more credible. In fact, there, there are some parts of his story are actually corroborated by Morgan's own employees. What we have in the record suggests that Morgan was the aggressor here, not Oaks. The second thing we learned is that this wasn't just an argument between Morgan's side and Oaks' side. There was this wild card involved, and the wild card was a local cop. His name's never been reported before. We now know it. His name was David Craver. He was a deputy sheriff for Sonoma County, and he was called to the scene. So Craver arrives. By this point, Richard and the kid have gone. It's just, it's just these white men around talking to this white cop. Morgan tells them what happened, the warning shot, et cetera, et cetera. And this cop responds, well, why didn't you shoot him when he had the knife in his hand? Why didn't you shoot Oaks? He goes on to brag, this cop, that, that he's not afraid of Indians, he says. And he says in front of these white men that he keeps an M16 rifle handy in the trunk of his cop car, and that rifle just loves to eat up Indians. So this is already a tense situation, and this cop comes in, not only says racist stuff, but says sort of menacing, threatening stuff that kind of creates an atmosphere of violence. It's almost like he's kind of goading Morgan into taking care of the situation on his own. Tensions are high, and the stage is set for what we now know happens next. Oaks will be shot dead by Morgan six days later. After a quick break, Chronicle reporters Jason Fagoni and Julie Johnson share what went down that day and all the blunders they discovered from Morgan's trial. You're listening to Fifth and Mission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Richard Oakes has a tense encounter with Michael Morgan, the caretaker of a YMCA camp in Sonoma County on September 14, 1972. Oakes defended a young Mohawk teen that wanted to hunt there. Six days later, Oakes will be shot dead by Morgan. Jason Fagoni, tell me what happens after that initial encounter. So the day before the killing, September 19th, this 15-year-old kid and one of his friends go to the YMCA camp. They're poking around the horse barn. And Morgan sees them there and he chases after them with a gun. And one of them gets away, but the other one, Billy, gets caught by Morgan. And according to the boy's court testimony, Morgan forces him into a car at gunpoint and threatens to blow his head off if he doesn't get in. And so Morgan basically does like a citizen's arrest of this Mohawk kid a day before the killing, calls the sheriff, sheriff takes this boy to jail. And meanwhile, Richard Oakes, he doesn't know that these specific things have happened, but he hears from the boy's friend who got away that something went down between Morgan and this kid, Billy. And so the next day, the day of the killing, September 20th, Oakes leaves the reservation on foot around 4 p.m. and he starts walking toward the YMCA camp. He's not armed, no gun, no knife, nothing, basically just the clothes on his back. And he gets to the camp and he finds Morgan there. And Morgan is walking up toward the road. And so the two men meet on this road, Oakes and Morgan. According to Morgan, Oakes says, what did you do with the boy? And the two of them start talking to each other. And after three minutes, Morgan pulls out a concealed pistol and he fires a single shot. And it strikes Oakes in the heart. And Richard Oakes tumbles backward onto his back in the road, and he dies almost instantly. Now, Julie, you spoke to someone who was one of the first people on the scene to investigate what happened to Richard Oakes. That's Sonoma County Sheriff's Detective Butch Carlstedt. And though Morgan was booked on suspicion of involuntary manslaughter, Carlstedt thought it was an open and shut case and that there was enough evidence pointing to murder. What did he share with you about that? Why did he think that? 50 years had passed and Butch remembered everything about this case. Only one person knows what really happened there, and that was Mike Morgan. He thought he was going to just be released and nothing happened. And first he pointed to the evidence. So one of the first things Morgan told Butch was that Richard had jumped out from behind some trees and had threatened him and startled him and that he feared for his life and he had to defend himself. Morgan claimed Richard had jumped out at him and startled him, but Butch didn't feel like that made sense because Richard was on his back when he was killed. He lay there in the middle of the road. And he also wasn't really that close to Morgan. They estimated maybe they were 10 feet from each other, but probably more like 20 feet. And also, Richard was totally unarmed. Richard had no weapons on him at all, nothing. It was a basic case. It was a man who shot another person, admitted it. So I had a victim, I had a suspect, I had a written confession. 
Butch was really clear with me. He felt that Morgan didn't have a right to shoot Richard, and he felt like a crime had occurred. There was this other thing that really made a strong impression on Butch, and it's not something you could take to court, but he remembers it 50 years later. And Butch told me that after Morgan gave his statement at the scene, after they'd written it down and Morgan had signed the piece of paper admitting to shooting Richard to death, he asked if he could go home. And Butch said he'd never encountered that before. He was a seasoned detective, but he'd never Mm -hmm. encountered that before from someone who had just killed another person. And that really stuck with him for 50 years. Jason, despite all this, an all-white jury deliberates for 25 hours and eventually finds Morgan not guilty on all counts. And through a Freedom of Information Act request, a FOIA request, you uncover FBI memos that reveal all the different ways that the justice system failed Oaks and his family. What were some of the key things that you found? So it turns out that the FBI investigated the killing at the time, 50 years ago. This wasn't publicly known at the time, but the FBI got a tip. So a couple of weeks after the killing, someone calls the FBI and says, look, this is not some local feud that got out of hand. This killing was racially motivated and even the cops were in on it. And so the Department of Justice uh, orders the FBI to investigate whether this was a civil rights violation, federal civil rights violation. And so the FBI starts interviewing witnesses and they keep these really detailed notes. They did this quietly, right? They didn't tell the public they were doing this. But they interviewed Morgan's employees. They interviewed other witnesses to some of the events in the lead up to the killing. They interviewed Deputy Craver, the one who said he had this rifle that loves to eat up Indians. And Craver denied that he said that, the FBI, but he admitted saying something similar. And there were these multiple other witnesses that had heard him. So all of that is in these uh, FBI witness statements that we were able to get. They've been sitting for years in this restricted part of the U.S. National Archive system known as Special Access. What we learned from these records is that, yes, in fact, there was compelling evidence that the killing was racially motivated and that the sheriff's deputy was was complicit. It's really hard to read these documents and conclude that Morgan acted alone. Despite this compelling evidence that there was a racial motivation here, federal lawyers basically ignored what the FBI agents had found. This is another thing that we discovered through FOIA that has never been revealed before. We found the government's reason for closing the case. So they closed the case without bringing charges in November 1972, about two months after the killing. Essentially, they say that they interviewed Craver, that he denied saying these things. They said that because this happened on private land and not on the reservation, there was really nothing they could do. And that it was clear that Morgan alone contemplated Oak's demise. That was the quote from the memo that kind of rang out to me. I mean, that's bullshit, right? We can see in the document that it's bullshit. Mm. But that is what the federal government decided. So they, yeah, so they shut the books on, on the whole thing. There were other issues with how this case was investigated. Julie, you spoke to the deputy district attorney who prosecuted the case at the time, Edward Krug. He admits he made some serious blunders during Morgan's trial. What were they? Like so many people we interviewed, nobody had asked him about this case in 50 years. He agreed with Butch that there were some problems with Morgan's story. And one piece of it was the bullet wound. So the bullet wound on Oaks's chest was larger than the one on his back. And typically the exit wound is bigger. And so he had this big question that is hung in his mind for 50 years, was Oakes's back turned to Morgan. Now, he had never been able 
to confirm that. He tried to ask the pathologist to really investigate that piece of it, but that thread just never got completely pulled. Prug basically kind of got outlawed. He was young. He didn't have a lot of experience. And he was up against two very seasoned defense attorneys. The defense attorneys, they, they came with a very clear uh, and simple story painting this narrative of threatening and menacing, physically overpowering Native American man trying to attack and harm this average American dad, Michael Morgan, who was who was just trying to protect his his family. Krug really was not able to effectively counter it. You know, Krug didn't talk much about Richard in a, in a positive sense because Krug told us he didn't want to inflame any kind of animosity that the, the white jurors might have against Richard. He, he didn't want them to remember what they might already know about Richard from having read about him in the paper, from having read about his protests in the area. My concern was picking a jury. I said, there's a white, all white jury here. I didn't think that was fair. The jurors have opinions of their own whether they're racially oriented or prejudiced or biased or whatever they might be. Very, very difficult. Krug also made some just outright blunders. He, um, he showed up for, for a trial on the first day without having prepared his opening statement. He forgot to have one of the pieces of Richard Oak's clothing that had been on him when he died. He forgot to have that analyzed by the, by the crime lab. And by the time he realized that he'd forgotten to do that, the trial was already pretty far advanced. Probably the main thing that Krug did that affected the, the outcome is that he stepped back when it came to talking about race. It's really hard to understand what happened on that day at that moment when Michael Morgan pulled the trigger without talking about race. How can you do it, right? Yeah. So there was, there was an absurd quality to the trial. It, 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 the, the thing that was at the center of the tragedy, there was this bubble of silence around it. Yeah. Jason, I'm struck by so many things you just described here, but I'm also just struck by Krug being so candid with you about the missteps. Yes, I, I was struck by that too. I don't think Krug is a bad guy at all. He was very direct with us, spent a lot of time with us, and he, he seemed to have some regret about how he had performed and how he had handled things. I mean, he, he straight up told us that he thought he did a lousy job. Well, Julie, hearing about this miscarriage of justice, I can only imagine how the Oaks family has been dealing with this for decades. Tell me a little bit more about how their lives were affected by all this and what did it mean for them for, for them to have you and Jason talk to them about all of this finally? You know, in many ways, it feels like an understatement to say that they suffered. I mean, they were just devastated in so many ways and their lives have been really difficult since then. I mean, Annie was left to raise seven children on her own and life was really, really difficult for them. There's this other part of it, you know, the acquittal invalidated how awful his killing was for them. You know, they felt robbed. Richard was taken away from them. Fawn, his youngest daughter, who I spent a lot of time talking with, you know, her father was taken away from her. She was only three years old. My mom never talked about him. As a kid, she told us to never get involved in the movement. She goes, I want you guys, you kids, alive with me. She was actually present, a toddler. She has no memory of this. When Michael Morgan fired the warning shot over Richard, this little child was there with him at his side. 
in many ways, no broader recognition of their loss, no person or institution held accountable. And in fact, the story that lasted was about this little argument between two people, but they've always known it was bigger than that. And they always believed Richard was targeted for his politics and for being indigenous. And so I'll be honest with you, it was really hard at first to to convince them to talk to us and to convince them that we were trustworthy. And so all of this is reopening wounds that have never healed. Well, Jason, Michael Oliver Morgan, the man who killed Oaks, is still alive. He's in his 80s now. You and Julie tracked him down in Oklahoma. Tell me what has his response been to both of your inquiries. He is still alive. I was surprised to learn that. Uh, the family was very surprised to learn that. They, they assumed that he had died long ago, but he's 84. He lives in Oklahoma. We sent him letters, never heard back. Called his house, left a message, um, didn't get a call back. So eventually I, I flew there, visited his town and, and knocked on his door. And I could see him through the screen door sitting on a couch. He's an old man, bald with glasses. And he came to the door when I knocked and I told him who I was and why I was there. And he sort of instantly kind of waved his hand and said he didn't want to talk. He said, I got your letters. So uh, I stood there on the porch with him for a couple of minutes, just sort of asking him to reconsider for the sake of history. You know, any, anything he might have to say about this is, is, is valuable to know. This is a historical event. Mm-hmm. It changed the course of a movement, right? We need, to, we need to know. And he nodded his head and he said, it was a sad thing that happened. But that's all, mm-hmm. that's all he would say. It seems like he's determined to um, stay silent on this and, until his death. What did you make of that comment? It was a sad thing that happened. What was your reaction to that? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think it must be present for him still, you know, in his memory, probably in the same way it is still very present for these 80 and 90 year old, you know, friends of Richard Oaks and retired law enforcement people and prosecutors, it's still kind of like right there under the surface. So it doesn't mm-hmm. take much to scratch it. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what it said to me. Jason, Julie, your reporting has not only unveiled all these missing details around Oaks's murder, but it's also hopefully reviving his legacy. Even though his name faded by the late 70s and 80s, Oaks's activism yielded some serious contributions for indigenous people. What were some of them? Today, a lot of what he was demanding, the things that made him a wide-eyed radical back then are just normal, everyday policy. Because in the decade or two after his death, Congress passed a series of bills that really echoed a lot of Richard Oak's central concerns and wove some of his ideas into law. Termination policies that had taken land from Native people after the war were consistently rolled back. Native people gained new rights on reservations, better access to education, and on and on. Richard's number one demand that Native people be treated as sovereigns, that they be allowed to build their own nations, is today how the federal government deals with Native tribes on a nation-to-nation basis. It's normal today. Back then, it was unthinkable. And so the movement that he sparked was ultimately, in the long term, quite successful in in, uh, changing the law and in changing the federal government's stance toward Native people, even though Richard wasn't around to see any of this 
sort of fruit get born. And Julie, what did family members and friends of Richard Oaks share with you about how they're trying to continue his legacy today? Well, one thing that's just really incredible to see and to hear is his grandson. One of his grandchildren is 22, Elijah Oaks, and he looks just like his grandfather. (laughs) But he also (laughs) echoes his words in this really incredible way. My grandfather said that Alcatraz was not an island, it's an idea. What had taken place at Alcatraz was a bunch of young Indians coming together to establish their right to self-determination. Tribes have the right to their own sovereignty and the right to establish ourselves as a true nation. He's really clear about how his grandfather was ahead of his time. This is what he said to me when charismatic leaders try to stand up for what's right in society, they get killed. I think a very clear message was sent when they assassinated my grandfather and acquitted the person who murdered him. It's also the reason why you didn't see anybody try to impact the movement on the same scale he did. Elijah is young and just at the start of his working life, and but he and some of his family members are, are thinking about ways that they might start sort of being at the forefront of trying to get Richard's name back out there and his legacy better understood. Jason and Julie, thank you so much for sharing this story with all of us. It's it's an incredible story. Thank you. Thank you, Cecilia. Yeah, thank you. Jason Fagoni is an investigative reporter and narrative writer for The Chronicle. And Julie Johnson is a reporter on The Chronicle's climate and environment team. Their story on Richard Oaks can be read at sfchronicle.com slash oaks. That's O-A-K-E-S. The project includes beautiful illustrations and a short documentary film produced by Chronicle staff photographer Bronte Whitpin. The interviews you heard in this episode were collected by Bronte for that piece. Check it out again at sfchronicle.com slash oaks. The audio you heard of Richard Oaks during the Alcatraz Island occupation was courtesy of Cron4TV and Nextstar Media, Inc. This episode was produced by me, mixed by Gary Baca, with additional production support from Sarah Feldberg and Keith Manconi. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 